I'm Greg Lambrecht, founder of Intrinsic Therapeutics and one of the inventors of the Barricade Annular Closure Device. In this podcast, you're going to be hearing from spine surgeons we've met in our travels around the world. In particular, from experts who are trying to optimize outcomes for their patients with lumbar disc herniations while preserving the remaining disc tissue. In this three-part interview series titled Disc Preservation, we welcome back Dr. Pierce Nunley and Professor Claudius Tomei and are glad to be joined by Professor Roger Hartle, Professor and Director of Spinal Surgery at Weill Cornell Brain and Spine Center in New York. Today in Chapter 1, Why Preserve the Disc? These surgeons and clinical research leaders discuss themes in the evolution of spinal surgery and why they matter. Let's turn it over to the experts. Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to the next uh, Disc Collective podcast. We have an amazing uh, uh, two guests here today that are uh, going to join us and hopefully have a, a real lively discussion about this most important subject. I'd like to introduce to you uh, Professor Roger Hartle. He's Professor of Neurological Surgery and Director of the Spinal Surgery Unit at Well Cornell Medis- Medical Center. Um, he has an amazing background. Uh, I, I tried to make it through his 88-page uh, CV, and I just I, I couldn't get through it. But um, uh, he has uh, uh, a long history of dealing with uh, this subject, the importance of the disc, the importance of trying to preserve the disc, and we are just honored to have him uh, share his wealth of experience over his career with us today. From across the pond, Professor Claudius Tomei. I've uh, become friends with Claudius during our uh, work with the DISC podcast. He is an amazing neurosurgeon. He has had a tremendous amount of experience with uh, DISC technology and also with the various devices that have been used to prevent the re-herniation of DISCs and played an important role in uh, actually the pivotal study that led to the FDA approval of this device. So without further ado, welcome to chapter one on this important uh, topic. What we'd like to do in this chapter is basically go through and talk about the history. Uh, how do we get here? What has happened in the past? The whole subject about preserving the disc has uh, been around for a while and uh, is gaining momentum here locally. So. I would like to uh, first uh, bring in uh, Professor Hartle into the discussion for uh, your perspective, uh, Roger, on how we've come here and why is preservation of the disc so important? Piers and Claudius, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, be able to join uh, my Saturday morning with you guys. (laughs) um, I'm really happy to be here, and, and I'm also happy to be here because it is a very, very important topic that frequently we don't talk about. You know, we, we, we talk about spinal fusion surgery, instrumentation, implants, and so forth. But rarely is there really an opportunity to talk about preservation of the disc. And it's a huge problem, obviously, in our societies all over the world, really. And, and personally, uh, how did I get interested in disc preservation? Is really by treating patients with disc problems for many years now. And by realizing that even though we, you know, we treat them surgically, if they have a herniated disc or if they have degenerative disc disease, maybe a fusion or disc arthroplasty, by realizing that even though the immediate treatment may be very beneficial for the patient, you know, as you get older in this field, you realize a lot of these patients come back. They had an extremely successful operation. Their leg pain is gone. They had a huge disc herniation. You cure them from a neurological deficit. But then they're back, you know, three months later or a year later or 10 years later, and they have problems at exactly the same level. 
So that's really how, personally how I came interested and really fascinated with the topic of disc preservation. Uh, so even though we think that we we, we help them, uh, we, we realize over the years that uh, we may only be delaying problems or we may actually even cause bigger problems for them in the future depending on how we uh, treat them at that particular time point. So, so that's how I personally got involved. And then obviously, if you look at the literature, you talk to colleagues and so forth, you realize that there's a huge problem and, and it's just not really addressed in the literature and uh, at scientific meetings and in the community of spine surgeons and spine, not only surgeons, but everybody who really takes care of spine problems. I, I hope that answers a little bit of your question, uh, but certainly that, that that's how I really got fascinated by this topic. Uh, that, that's awesome, Roger. And uh, now to uh, Professor Tomei. Claudius, uh, tell us about your history and how this is an exciting field for you. Well, it's always, as Roger said, um, first of all, great pleasure to be here again and, and have you moderating this. It's always great fun. As Roger had already alluded to, I mean, we tend to talk about sagittal balance and 24 screws in people and how good we can do things. And we tend to forget the simple things of neurosurgery or spine surgery. And how I got involved was that um, when I was trained in the, in the 90s, actually, I had some, some old guys that actually took out the whole disc when they did a regular discectomy. And they really ruined that segment completely and thought this was the way to go. They were 65 at the time. And then my boss came up and said, well, I only take the fragment. I think that's enough because that's the offending problem. And I was there as a young resident and saying, well, what is going on there? Then the next thing that happened at that time was that people asked for laser surgery and things like that. So people came and stuck in lasers in the disc to shrink it. And I always felt like, I think, I don't know whether it was that common in, or whether there was that wave in the US, but in Europe, we had a wave where people would do that. Right. And I felt like, I mean, if you put a laser in something to destroy this, this good nucleus in, in a 25-year-old, this cannot be right. And that's when we started the end of the 90s to do a, a small randomized studies comparing fragmentectomy versus fragmentectomy plus microdiscectomy. And we found that it was uh, particularly MRI after two years showed if you do only a fragmentectomy, it was much better for the disc and, and for the segment in, in the long run. And so I absolutely agree with Roger. If we do a discectomy or an aggressive discectomy as we were taught um, in the past, I think we will see those patients back more commonly for low back pain and arthritic changes. And I think that's why it's so important to preserve the disc. So I think this is a good time to talk about uh, perceptions, right? So as surgeons, we think everything that we do turns out wonderfully well. And I think one of the studies that uh, pointed that out was like the sports study, when all of a sudden it shows that these discectomy patients aren't necessarily doing as well as we think. Nothing like follow-up to uh, ruin your day. Start with you, Roger. How did you handle understanding that these patients uh, that you think all do well with just a simple discectomy may, may not? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, Cla Claudius mentioned the importance of who you train with. And, uh, and I trained with uh, Joe Maroon the first few years of my, my residency. And he's, he's obviously 
very involved with sports, athletics, and, and he's really a proponent of nutrition and lifestyle. So that kind of opened my eyes towards other things outside the, the, the surgical arena, but also the importance of really following up with these patients. And once we started implementing a, um, a way to track patients, which when I started here at Cornell, we didn't have a database, we didn't really follow any, and, and nobody in those days probably, or very few people did. Once we started uh, collecting uh, our outcome data, and that was for me when I started doing tubular surgery, and we, we published a bunch of manuscripts about the implementation of tubular microsurgery for spinal pathologies, that's when I realized that you know a lot of these patients have recurrent disc herniations. A lot of these patients uh, come back because they have degenerative disc disease. They may need a fusion at some point. So, so for me, that was really the um, the most important step to actually sit down, come up with a database, and start collecting outcome data for yourself. And that's always what I tell young surgeons who train with me. Nothing as good as a follow-up to ruin your day. So, so you got to be honest with yourself and with your patients, and, and that's that's really important. Yeah, excellent. And for you, Claudia, is uh, the same. I mean, what uh, what are your thoughts about that? No, absolutely the same. I mean, we um, in the '90s we didn't really follow our patients that much. You saw them after four or six weeks, and if they were fine, and which usually is the case after the discectomy, they were good. And then we realized our recurrence rates were not that good. We started fusing people that had previous surgery. So we looked in the literature, and there are some big registry studies that you all know that actually at the end, your success rate is only 75, 80% if you look at uh, some year follow-up, which is much poorer than we all would think. And and recurrence rates of in the 10% range um, for, for the average patient. And we also know particularly some of those female patients, young females, who we always considered as a joke, even they have a malignant disc that grows back and back. And you, you can hardly believe why they are having two big re-herniations, even if you felt like you were doing the surgery okay. So exactly the same evolution that Roger went through. And I think while we're talking, maybe, go ahead, Roger. Let me just add, uh, because I, I increasingly, and maybe you see that in your practice, I see that patients actually ask that question. When you describe to them, you do a microdiscectomy, and I'm always surprised at how you know, educated all these people are. They always ask, you know, what are you doing with a hole? You remove a disc, there's a hole, so what, do you, what, what can you offer me? And, and it really comes up increasingly, and maybe people are more educated, they read up more. But I'm really surprised by that. And, and it must be a more recent development because I don't remember 10, 15 years ago patients really asking that question. But, but there's a real, and that, that also increases our, you know, our awareness of the problem. I think patients are becoming a little more aware of their treatment and we're involving them more rather than go to the doctor, the doctor says you need this, I need this, okay. They're, they're reading more and it just makes intuitive sense, I mean logical sense that, well, you're gonna leave a hole there uh, I got a herniation because there was a hole. What's going to keep that from happening again? So I, I, I think it makes perfect sense. I, I think to, to close out this segment, uh, it would, I think, be good to say a few words about the history of learning about how there's a type of disc that's more likely to re-herniate, and, uh, like in Carragy's paper. So, Claudius, uh, talk to us a bit about not all discs are the same, and there's a type of disc and a type of herniation that uh, we need to be more mindful of for reherniation. Yeah, well, I think there are two points that are important in my mind, also in training the, the younger surgeons. One is 
that when I was trained um, and you would take a fragment out, you felt you have to go in the disc now and take more disc out, even if there was not a hole. And I think if, if you don't find a, a hole, don't create one. I think that's, that's quite clear what we've learned, that if you then cut a box shape, that's how I was trained. Take out the fragment and then cut a box out of the analyst to, to take out the rest of the disc. And I think this is probably the most stupid thing we could have done. And, and that's how I was trained. So, and you felt like, oh, I have to go in. And I think this is one side of the story. If you don't have a hole, then don't create one. And the second part is, as you say, there are some patients that have a definitely higher risk of reherniation. And we also found this in our, in our um, 550 patient um, trial, that if you have a, a large annular defect, if you do have a high disc, actually female patients seem to have a higher risk as well. Younger patients as well, maybe that's because female patients have genetic profile, maybe different. And those patients, I think we have to worry most about because they may have, as Kerrigy found, a 30% ch chance of reherniation, which is exceedingly high. And we would never tell our patients, oh, you have a one in three risk to come back. So I think this, these are the, the important patients. And Roger, uh, can you add to that? certainly agree. I think the numbers are pretty, and the statistics are pretty clear. You know, the disc height, the age of the patient, uh, those are all things that are related to the risk of uh, recurrence. Uh, I'm always surprised that behavioral things are not really, don't seem to be so important. You know, we always tell patients, you know, no lifting, bending, twisting for six weeks, don't play golf and all these things. I always wonder how important that really is. I mean, it should be important, but the data, you know, the science hasn't really shown that, which is, so it's really more based on um, anatomical parameters, which I'm always surprised I, I think that's, but I, you know, I think that's you know, correct. Agree with yeah, I, I think that's correct, Roger. And I, you know, I, I can't remember the paper because this was uh, over 20 years ago. It was in the late nineties. Uh, I was uh, young, out of fellowship, and I read about, I think it might have been out of Europe, maybe Claudius was on this, but it was talking about how, you know, basically releasing your microdiscectomy patients to return to normal activity when they felt like it. And there was no difference in recurrence uh, herniations. And so I started, I would say in 99, telling all my microdiscectomy patients, you can return to activity when you feel like it. And I practiced like that since and from a reherniation rate, patients do well because I think there's also something to reactivating your core and, and getting back to normal activities that may, in one way, could increase that but also could be preventative. Well, with that, I'd like to close out Chapter 1 talking about our history, and uh, we'll move on to the next chapter where we're talking about more uh, current affairs in the disc. Thanks to Dr. Nunley and Professors Tomei and Hartle. And thank you for listening and for helping us build a world where lumbar disc herniation doesn't define lives. Stay tuned to hear from the experts on how we are preserving the disc today. Keep in mind that the products discussed in this podcast have labeling limitations. Barricade is indicated for reducing the incidence of reherniation and reoperation in skeletally mature patients with radiculopathy, with or without back pain, attributed to a posterior or posterior lateral herniation, and confirmed by history, physical examination, and imaging studies, which demonstrate neural compression using MRI to treat a large annular defect between four and six millimeters tall and between six and 10 millimeters wide, following a primary discectomy procedure at a single level between L4 and S1. All medical devices have risks. Please refer to barricade.com instructions 
for a full list of benefit and risk information. U.S. law restricts this device to sale by or on the order of a physician. The guests on this podcast are consultants of Intrinsic Therapeutics. Mm-hmm.